My name is Marie Leconte. Welcome to The Bunker. It's the worst job in politics, but if you ever want to be Prime Minister, you... Well, usually you have to do it. The past few years have been a mess. Being leader of the opposition is often a thankless task, and if you don't succeed, people will forget you ever existed. Still, opposition leaders can and often do shape British politics, and they deserve their time in the spotlight. At least Nigel Fletcher thinks so. His new book, The Not Quite Prime Ministers, Leaders of the Opposition from 1783 to 2020, is coming out this month. Hi, Nigel. Hi. So before writing this book, you helped launch the Centre for Opposition Studies and you did your PhD on the history of the official opposition in the UK. What made you interested in the topic in the first place and what's kept you working in it since? Well, it is one of those sort of weird uh, obsessions that I have in politics. But basically, the reason is I, I think that it's um, half the political equation. Um, mm. I'm, I'm always sort of saying to people, you know, there are whole libraries of books about government and about prime ministers. Um, people set up institutes for government, for example, is a very good one in this country. Mm. And they see government as important. And so you get lots of people studying it. Um, opposition doesn't get anywhere near the same amount of attention. And so my interest, first of all, came uh, when I was at university, I was actually working for the opposition. I worked for David Willits, who was my hometown MP, and he was in the shadow cabinet. So I sort of saw behind the scenes as to how much of a shoestring really the opposition ran on, which I found really interesting, that you had sort of huge government departments uh, on one side, um, and then kind of a shadow minister and and sort of me on the other, (laughs) which I thought was a bit weird. Um, And also there was a a great series of lectures that Peter Hennessy I was at Queen Mary uh, University, and um, Peter Hennessy uh, organised some lectures, including one from Gillian Shepherd, uh, who had been in the cabinet and was then a shadow minister. Uh, and she gave a f- fantastic lecture about the shock of going from government into opposition. Uh, and I found that sort of transition really interesting as well. So that's what really got me first interested in it. And um, and since then, I did my PhD on the organisation of the opposition, which again, hasn't really been studied very much. And I found that there wasn't very much um, out there. There's been some uh, some books on it, but they were quite, quite old, a lot of them. And so it's become a, a sort of, uh, as I say, a bit of a weird obsession over the years. <laughs> so someone who now probably knows more about the role than basically anyone, do you think it really is the worst job in politics? Well, I hear this sort of said that it's the worst job in politics. And um, I mean, to be fair, a few of the people who've said that have, have been people who've done the job. So <laughs> I think you might listen to them. But um, but I think it, it's only the worst job in the sense that if someone does it and doesn't become prime minister, then as Neil Kinnock has, has said in the past, you know, it was a complete sort of waste of their time, you know, that they've sort of spent that time banging their head against a brick wall. It must wall. feel quite existential, I think, after a while to go, yeah. oh. <laughs> well, this is the thing. And he, he, he's got a very funny line, actually, that he said, that he's about the only person um, in in history who can date their midlife crisis to the exact minute that it began and ended, <laughs> uh, which was kind of you know the time he became leader and the time he stepped down in in 1992. Um, and you know he's described it you know, as purgatory. Other people have said that, and and I think that you know it, it's all about the relationship with with power. You know you're not in power, and so if you're a leader of the opposition and you want to become prime minister, then. You know, the time you spend doing that is really intensely frustrating. And if you don't become prime minister, of course, it's even more frustrating. But I mean, to answer your question, I don't think it is the worst job in politics. I think that actually you do a lot of things as leader of the opposition that are important to the democratic system, um, whether or not you become prime minister. And if you look at some of the leaders who have spent sort of a long time in opposition, um, a lot of them have done the sort of the hard work of getting their party from a pretty dismal state into a much more electable and uh, organised proposition. And I don't think we should underestimate that. I think that's a, a, a job that needs doing in politics. William Hague talks about it as having done the night shift in opposition, you know, <laughs> sort of getting it to that point, mm. only for someone else to sort of take on the baton. But I think that's important. 
I know that makes sense. And so could you give us like a brief history of how, why and when the role was created in the first place? Because you mentioned that it was not necessarily obvious who the mm. first Lotto was. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, I've chosen Charles James Fox as the first one because he was a very prominent opposition leader um, from sort of around about the 1780s onwards. Um, he spent basically 22 years in opposition. So he put in a sort of a heavy stint in, in opposition. But of course, the way that the job of prime minister evolved was quite gradual as well. We say that Robert Walpole was the first prime minister. Well, it was a gradual process. He became the sort of most prominent person um, when the sort of the king stopped being sort of in, in day-to-day charge of the government. And the same is true on the opposition. At, at various times, it was quite difficult to tell who was the most prominent opposition person. There were a collection of different people. And so it's really about who becomes a prominent person. You didn't have systems of election of, of the leader uh, the early days. You didn't necessarily have parties in the same way we'd recognise them today. So it's a lot more fluid and based around personalities. But the reason I chose you Fox... you me. Something in British politics based <laughs> around personalities. Well, exactly, exactly. Um, and people following factions mm. and personalities sort of driven politics, very much so in, in the sort of 18th century, um, that, that, you know, pe- people were described as foxites, you know, they were described by sort of who they were, had allegiance to. And so, you know, the, the role of evolved really, as we got more into a system of the person who was recognised as the leader of the opposition then became prime minister, um, or, you know, they are the person who is, when we get into the sort of more democratic age, the person who's leading the campaign. Uh, they are the sort of the national spokesperson for the, for the party. So in the same way as kind of a prime minister emerged out of a kind of uh, group of, of senior ministers, the leader of the opposition kind of emerged as a single figure. Um, but for a lot of the time I've covered, actually, we have a leader in the House of Commons and a leader in the House of Lords. So that has another layer of complication because it wasn't always clear who was going to be the candidate for prime minister. Mm. Who do you think, I realise this is quite a tough question, but like, who would be the first lotter you think you know, that, 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 that was quite close. I had a rule that was quite close to what we recognise today as the leader of the opposition. Um, that is quite a difficult one. I think really the, the sort well, of... Well, like, were there different points maybe where you go, and yeah. that was a big bit of it. Or that exactly. Was, yeah. And there, there are a couple who I note sort of in the book spent quite a lot of their time on party organisation. Hmm. So there are some who um, recognise that as well as the bit in the House of Commons and focusing on sort of leading their troops uh, through the lobbies and, and challenging the government there, they needed to work on the machinery of, of elections and that sort of thing. So you get through the 19th century when politics becomes much more democratic, people focusing a lot more on that. So there are a few there where you start to see that there are some elements there, uh, including I've, at one point I sort of say one of them sort of has a career plan that seems quite modern because he's sort of been almost like a spad, you know, and oh, sort of then goes yeah. on. Um, and so there's a few like that who sort of spend their time kind of focusing on the electoral machinery. Um, but it's not really until you get into the 20th century where you actually start getting that real sort of sense that the leader of the opposition is the single person who is the candidate um, to be prime minister. Mm. And so what makes a good leader of the opposition then? Because um, presumably they don't need exactly the same set of skills as a good prime minister. No, and it's, they are very different roles. And I think we, we do tend to see, and in modern politics, people do discuss this, you know, about um, people saying that person would be quite a good leader in opposition, but that maybe shouldn't take over as prime minister. That's um, usually they're kind of a dig, isn't it? Like, you know, yeah. they, they can have the other job for a bit, but not run the country, Jesus exactly, Christ. Exactly, <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I even saw someone saying it about Boris Johnson at some point yeah, mm. recently. I, I think my, my 
I mean, Matthew Paris, I think, was was sort of advocating that you know that he was much better would have been better suited as a leader in opposition, oh, yeah, that's um, which you know, rather than um, taking over in in government. And I think that's a recognition that there is a different um, skill set that you need to be a good leader of the opposition because you need to have a narrative, you need to actually appeal to people in a much more populist way, really. Um, you know, so I think you do tend to see the kind of the more managerial, the more technocratic uh, leaders. They tend to be sort of much better when they are in office as prime minister. Mm. Um, but it's getting to that point. And I think there's, I mean, people like, for example, Harold Wilson, who, of course, isn't in the book because he became prime minister. Mm. Um, but he was someone who was very technocratic. He was, you know, he was an academic yeah. um, and very interested in machinery of government. But he also had the popular touch. He had the sort of common touch of being able to uh, play to the media. He had his pipe. He knew exactly what his public image was. Mm. And so you have people who actually are able to play the game in opposition. Um, and actually, if they have that skill set, as well as being a, a, a good administrator, for example. Um, Edward Heath, another one who became prime minister and um, and was quite technocratic, but had really very little of the popular touch. And so mm. um, actually, you know, I think it's, um, you know, his, his winning in 1970, of course, means that he, he's not in the book. But had he not become prime minister, we'd have said, oh, well, he wasn't a very popular you know, mm. figure. And of course, he, he had a terrible time in the 1966 election. So, you know, he, he wasn't seen as being a particularly effective leader. But there are others like that who you sort of look at as being good opposition leaders. Um, who you wonder, you know, would they have made a good prime minister? Um, and they are very different skills. Is being leader of the opposition actually good prep for becoming prime minister? Well, um, I'm going to name drop here because uh, I Ooh. did interview for not not for this book actually, for, but for the sort of the history of the opposition one. I did interview uh, a number of leaders of the opposition, and David Cameron actually said to me that he thought that being leader of the opposition was actually a fairly good apprenticeship mm. for being prime minister. And the reason for that is that the step up, uh, and others have said this, Blair has said this as well actually, that the step up from being a shadow cabinet minister to being leader of the opposition is a huge change in actually sort of your profile. File, uh, your workload and, and what you're having to do. So then going from being effectively a national figure leading your party, you know, you have to deal with reshuffles. We've got one of those going on today mm. uh, with the, the Labour Party. Um, and so, you know, you have to deal with managing the team. You have to deal with uh, the press constantly asking you your opinion on everything. And so, um, you know, in Blair's case, he had, I think, three, uh, three years of that. Cameron had five years of it before mm. he became prime minister. Um, and actually that, that intense focus, the scrutiny you get from the media, but also the running of the team and policy and all those sorts of things. It is the best apprenticeship you can have outside of sort of, you know, being, I suppose, deputy prime minister or something in government. Mm. And even then you don't you know necessarily have the same level of focus. So it is a sort of step up. Um, Michael Howard, um, who is in the book, um, has also said to me that he felt that being leader of the opposition was sort of comparable to being a very senior cabinet minister. He was home mm. secretary um, previously and he thought it, the workload and the intensity of the job was very similar to that. So, um, so I think it is a very good, particularly in the modern media age, it's a very good preparation for being prime minister. Mm. And so what do you think of the job as it is? Like, is there anything do you think should be changed or reverted back to the way it used to be or mm. again invented you know, in a new way? Or Well, I think that it's become much more common for a leader to present themselves as being a direct shadow of, um, a, a, of the government. And so they have this, um, this dilemma which they always face about how much they want to be presenting their own ideas and their own sort of uh, agenda for government versus sort of attacking the government. And 
And, you know, there's different schools of thought on which one of those is, is better. You can lay out loads and loads of policy and then get attacked for it. Mm. Or you can just sort of, you know, bash the government. Uh, and get attacked for and it. Then get a, uh, yeah, <laughs> and then get people saying, well, what are you going to do about it? So there's always mm. that sort of balancing act you have to do. Um, one thing I, I do think, because we've said that the skill set are different that you need from being prime minister and leader of the opposition, um, I think sometimes there's a need to lean more into that um, and say that, you know, we want to present, as, as Churchill called it, um, a lighthouse, not a shop window. To mm. say, look, you know, we want to present a, a vision of the future. That's our job as an opposition to present the alternative. And of course, we must have some policies, but we're not going to sort of lay out absolutely everything. Um, and I think there has been over time what we've seen with the greater institutionalization of the opposition. We've seen a much sort of greater focus on directly mirroring the government. So, you know, mm. you, you've got to have a shadow parliamentary undersecretary of state for whatever uh, and that kind of thing. And, and you know, there have been different experiments in the past by different leaders who've tried to sort of get away from that and actually just have, you know, people who sort of range a bit more freely. And I think that there is a sort of uh, a case for saying that there are different ways of doing opposition, um, that, mm. you know, you're not actually running the country. You don't need to stick to necessarily one particular brief. You could move mm. people around and a bit more... Have some fun with it. Exactly. And it was much more common. I mean, the immediate post-war period, um, Churchill, you know, had very uh, relaxed shadow cabinets. He, he generally tended to um, chair uh, the meetings of them at the Savoy uh, over lunch. <laughs> um, you know, he left Anthony Eden to actually do the hard work of actually running the, the show. He would just invite them all for lunch and sort of didn't mm. want to talk very much about um, about politics. But what he did do was allow them to sort of range a bit more freely. And so you'd have yeah. on a particular bill, you know, someone who had some expertise in that would would front up and, and lead for the opposition on that. And then they'd sort of hand over to somebody else to do something else. So it was a mo- lot more fluid, which you can do in opposition. Mm. Um, and there have been some leaders who've experimented a bit with that. Michael Howard sort of slimmed down the shadow cabinet. Others have uh, did that. I think Edward Heath sort of went one way and then the other on it. Um, and so there's different ways you can manage the team. But I think now we're locked into this idea that you have to be a direct shadow of the government, mm. um, which I think can be a bit restrictive. So like, who are some interesting opposition leaders you think people hmm. may not have heard of? <laughs> well, the ones I'm going to highlight, I think, um, because I think that they need to sort of have some kind of reappraisal, are the ones that people don't even consider to have been leaders of the opposition. Um, and there are some in the in the sort of 19th century where, you know, it's not very clear and some of them are sort of... Um, leaders in the House of Lords and they sort of, um, mm. you know, it gets a, a bit of a kind of title soup, I find, a kind of, <laughs> you know, a sort of mess of ermine. You sort of think, who are all these people? But the ones I'm interested in are the ones in the 20th century. So, for example, during the Second World War, it's a great question I always set to my students, who was the leader of the opposition during the Second World War? And when you think about that for a moment, you think... Uh, who who is it? Yeah, actually? No, you will notice I'm currently silent um, <laughs> because Clement Attlee at the time was leader of the Labour Party. He was in government, hmm. um, and so what you actually had was um, a succession of senior backbench Labour MPs, effectively former ministers, uh, who took on the job. So you had first of all Hastings Lee Smith, who was I think the for- former Postmaster General, hmm. um, uh, who who sadly died in in the role, and then he handed over to a guy called Fred Pethick Lawrence, uh, who did it for a, a, a few weeks, actually, um, because Arthur Greenwood, who had been in the government, then stood down, uh, and then he sort of took over. And so you have these people who are sort of nominated 
by Clement Attlee to lead for the Labour Party in opposition during the Second World War. But the person who sort of lost out from that um, is a guy called Jimmy Maxton, who was the leader of the Independent Labour Party. Aww. And under the, the sort of rules of, you know, who gets the salary of leader of the opposition, it's it's laid out in statute, as it had been since mm. 1937, um, that the leader is defined as the leader of the largest group in opposition to the government mm. um, that's, um, uh, you know, in the House. And with the Labour Party and the Liberals, all involved in the wartime coalition. He made a very good and, uh, and convincing case, I think, that his four MPs uh, of the <laughs> ILP, of which he was the leader, actually formed the official opposition. Um, and it's hard to argue with that. Um, and, and the Speaker sort of, uh, you can almost tell, sort of undenerved when he put this point of order in the chamber. But they didn't let him do it. Uh, I sort of feel like it's like vibes like the Corbyn shadow cabinet. You know, when <laughs> at that point, everyone had seven different jobs because no one yes. else wanted to say that. Paul Flynn was like, I am, I am the shadow cabinet. <laughs> now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but um, yeah, you had uh, these debates sort of at the start of the war about, you know, who was going to respond to the Prime Minister um, mm. after he'd made a statement, all this sort of thing. And so it ended up being, as I say, these three Labour MPs who did it during the course of the, of the war. But it actually shouldn't have been. You know, if you look at the rules, uh, it should have been Jimmy Maxton, who uh, you can see why they didn't want him to do it. He's quite a sort of a, mm. an extreme left wing Labour MP. But we've had a few of those leading the opposition as well over the years. Mm. <laughs> Is it, on that note, so who's your favourite ever opposition leader? Well, this is a, this is a, a really tricky one. Um, I mean, I, I've mentioned him before, but I think I'm I'm going to say that Neil Kinnock is one who I think, um, both on a personal level, and I will declare an interest here, he is a um, an honorary president of the Centre for Opposition Studies mm. um, and has been a great supporter of us. Um, but through that that sort of work, I've I've met him and, and spent a lot you know a lot of time with him talking about politics, and he is such great company. So I do like him on a very personal level. Mm. He talks um, so much. Though, so I always assume people <laughs> exaggerated when we're going to some was it some. Labour drinks thing, um, and he, you know, he he went got up to do a speech, and he started it as well. Which I remember really clearly by saying, you know, the, the one thing in life people have to remember is that no one's ever complained about a speech being too short. <laughs> and then he spoke for forty five minutes, forty five, and no one could go to the bar while he was talking. And that that genuinely, I think half the Labour Party came close to a riot that evening. <laughs> <It was> just... <laughs> Well, I, the, and of course, you know, he he famously during the Westland um, debate was, was criticised for the way that he he responded on, on that. Um, but you know, I, I saw, but on a, on a personal level, as I say I, I I very much enjoy his skills as a raconteur for one thing. Um, but I think also it, it comes back to this this point I made earlier about the sort of the, the night shift. Um, you know, he took over a Labour Party in 1983 that was not just sort of in disarray, but was close to being overtaken. Mm. Um, you know, you had a real threat in that 1983 election uh, that the STP Liberal Alliance would actually overtake the Labour Party as the official opposition. Now, of course, we know mainly because of the first past the post system that didn't happen. But if you look at the vote share, it was very close. Mm. Uh, and so there was, and we forget about this, we, there was an existential threat to the Labour Party in the, the, the early 80s. And so he took over a party that really was very much on the floor. And if you just fast forward to the end of his tenure, uh, when he, as you said, he ended his midlife crisis by resigning <laughs> uh, in 19 in the wake of the 92 election. But, uh, you know, in the election campaign, you know, they were the assumed next government. It was yeah. thought that there was no way that John Major's Conservatives could get a majority and therefore there would be probably a hung parliament. Neil Kinnock would become prime minister. Um, and so they were on the brink of power. And, you know, of course, there was uh, criticism of the Sheffield rally for um, mm. for sort of triumphalism. It doesn't actually quite bear out in, if you look at the history of it. And he's very defensive about that himself. Mm. But, but, you know, unquestionably, he was a credible 
candidate at that point to become prime minister and was expected to do so. And I think if you take the sort of position he started with to how he left it, that I think is a huge success. So I think uh, he's one that I think, you know, deserves a lot more credit than he often gets. Mm, I agree, actually. And who's your least favourite one? Like, who's the one yeah. that when you were writing your book, like, Christ, not that one again? Yeah. <laughs> um, there are a couple of more recent ones who I think, you know, you sort of look at and think that really was, a you know, a really bad period of opposition. But I'm going to be kind and I'm going mm. to go back to the 19th century and, Ooh, say diplomatic. That the, and say that the one that I thought was really uh, came across to me as just an unpleasant character was William Harcourt, um, who I knew the name because he'd been uh, Home Secretary. He was later Chancellor of the Exchequer, a great sort of Victorian titan. And another one of these figures who is not known for being leader of the opposition, he again, did it, you know, fairly briefly after he'd been in government. But he's a name that sort of resonates in history. And so I knew about a little bit about him. And reading sort of some of the accounts of it, it just turned out that, you know, he he was just a very sort of personally unpleasant person. Mm. But what I think is interesting is that actually is probably what stopped him becoming prime minister. There are a couple of occasions where he could have um, become the sort of favoured successor, um, you know, to Gladstone. And really the fact that no one liked him because he was so... <laughs> his personality was, was very his, bad. Yeah, and so he just he just wasn't able to sort of bring people with him. And that's a mm. lesson, really. But also, you know, there are other stories that he was just a bully. You know, he, he mm. just bullied his staff. Um, and, you know, it just resonated with me when you read some of these things. And, of course, you get the usual thing you get today mm. of people saying, well, of course, he was very demanding. Mm. Uh, you know, but, he, working in, well, but, he got, but he got results. You know, mm. that's the important thing. And, of course, you know, he never meant it. Mm. You know, he was always very kind to you afterwards and he'd always apologise um, but you know he would have these rages his private secretary in the treasury when he was chancellor of the exchequer wrote what was supposed to be a kind of you know a, a, a sort of kind uh, sort of account of him but which said mm. that you know he was this brilliant man who I loved working for but even he, he said that you know his rages were like a toddler you know he would sort of really rage and just absolutely mm. go off on one um, but again he would sort of say but you know, I, you know I think that was just part of his, you know, his personality and I just thought we all know people like that. Yeah, luckily things have actually changed so much (laughs) in politics. Westminster is a very different place now. But we all know people like that. And I just Mm. thought, as I read sort of the accounts of it, and, you know, you sort of get the kind of, you know, he was a very effective minister. He was a very Mm. sort of, you know, um, impressive character, very intelligent, very accomplished. And I thought, yeah, that's all true. But we all know people who actually behave like that. And I just took Mm. against him. (laughs) (laughs) I respect that. Um, And so finally, assuming Labour does win the next election, do you have any advice for Tory MPs who are kind of starting to think Mm. about maybe running to be opposition leader? I think they need to think very carefully about whether they are prepared to do the night shift. Mm. Um, Because we have seen um, in recent decades uh, a kind of lengthening of periods in government. And so, you know, we've had 13 years of of Labour government followed by 13 years of Conservative government. And so assuming that Labour do um, win next time, um, that pattern is probably going to continue, we would imagine. Mm. Um, And so, you know, you're not necessarily going to be the leader who takes your party back to power. Are you prepared to do it? Um, Now, William Hague, who, of course, was in that situation in 1997, he has has said that he wouldn't have done anything differently. People have said, why didn't you, Mm. uh, why didn't you sort of hesitate at that point and say, well, I'll sit back and I'll, I'll do it a bit later. 
Um, and he said that he didn't think that anyone else could have held the party together as well as he did during mm. that period of time. Probably not wrong. Which is probably, you know, fairly accurate. And so I think, you know, there is a, an important job to do in steadying the ship, in building the sort of party machine back up, um, getting permission to be heard. But I think if you're not prepared for the ultimate disappointment of you may do all of those things for five years and then just have to resign after another election defeat, having not become prime minister, you know, I think that's a really tough thing for mm -hmm. any politician who sort of has their eye on the on, on the crown. But I think politics uh, sometimes happens in, in, in surprising ways. There's always the sort of th the thought exactly. that... Then again, we said that about Keir Starmer, didn't we? Like everyone exactly. said, well, you know, He's good a, luck to Keir Starmer, yes. he will never be prime exactly. minister. <laughs> we thought he was an interim leader. So I think that's the, mm. other, that's the other point, is that I think people can sort of look at it and think, well, you know, it's my best chance to become leader, so I've got to do it now. Because mm. five years down the line, you may be, you know, yesterday's news and you won't have another chance. So I don't blame people for going for it when they have the chance. But I think if they're going to do it in the wake of an election defeat then they need to think, am I prepared to do this just for its own sake? Mm. Um, you know, is there a message? Is there a, um, a kind of narrative that I want to build myself, that I want to be heard? It's a bit like the, the Bartlett thing in the West Wing. It's kind of like, you know, mm. this is more important than re-election. I want to speak now. I think they need to think, look, you know, do I want to say some things? Do I want to actually get in there and actually just... Because I think they will be given a lot more credit by the public if they do that for one thing um, but also there's just the, the reality that I think that they're unlikely to be able to do it in one election mm. um, and so you know are they prepared to join the list of leaders in my book I think is basically <laughs> the question for the next edition exactly. Yeah, exactly oh great that was so interesting thank you so much Nigel thank you listeners if you enjoyed this podcast you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them there's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast for as little as £3 a month, you'll get access to episodes early and without adverts, as well as exclusive offers on merchandise. I'm Marie Leconte, and you are listening to The Bunker. The Bunker was written and presented by Marie Leconte. The producer was Chris Jones, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.